Well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to another open air video. No, not the open air pulpits. I'm afraid to say the open air pulpit is closed. The road which takes me from my home to the open air pulpit is closed for roadworks, and I would imagine uh, that road will be closed for a few more weeks. So, for today, if you don't mind, I will <laughs> film uh, this message from a backup location. In fact, I just jump out a camera shot for a few moments and allow you to enjoy this beautiful backdrop. It is dry, so praise the Lord. It is mild, not too hot for July. And as long as it's mild, as long as it's not too cold, as long as it's not wet, I can hopefully spend some time today continuing to work through the book of Genesis, a book about people, a book about folks such as you and I, the best of the best. But last time we got to chapter 22, and we spent some time looking at Abraham sacrificing Isaac or Abraham's desire, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And of course, you know that Abraham is a great type of God the Father and Isaac is a great type of God the Son. And had the angel of the Lord not stepped in at the 11th hour and told Abraham to stop, he would have continued to sacrifice his son, knowing, of course, that Jehovah could so easily resurrect Isaac from the dead. Fast forward to the New Testament, God the Father would sacrifice God the Son, and yes, after three days, resurrect him from the dead. And the scripture says, if you believe that, if you trust in that, you are saved. But we spent some time looking at chapter 22 and speaking about faith and how real our faith is. And the scripture says that if you love your mother or your father, your son or your daughter, anyone or anything more than the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not worthy of him. And of course, we know what he is referring to. He's saying this, that if anyone or anything stops you from coming to me in order to be saved, you are not worthy of me. And of course, we have to completely concur with such a statement. And yet, even after we are saved, we are still, still not worthy of him. But I do believe Abraham would have sacrificed Isaac. And around that time, Isaac is probably between 16 to 20, 21, 22, a young man, complicit at the same time. He knew what was about to take place and he loved Jehovah like Abraham. And he had total faith in his father being Abraham and also in Jehovah. That's a great picture of sacrifice. And yet when we think about our own relationships with the Lord, sometimes we wonder if our relationships are the real thing. I mean, are we, are we really striving to be holy? Are we really striving to obey the Lord? If you love me, keep my commandments. And yet, praise the Lord, we're not saved by our works. We are saved by faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that without the shedding of blood, there is no omission of sins. There is no other way for the world to be redeemed outside of the blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, I don't want to trust in his blood. I want to present myself to him when I die. Well, that's fine. You can do just that. But Romans says how every mouth will be stopped. And I would suggest to you that within the first two or three seconds of arriving in his presence, you will discover you've got nothing to offer him and you would just want the ground to open up and suck you in. So you've got one or two options. You either trust him as your savior 
or you take him as your judge. And I know for my uh, position, I took him as my saviour 15 years ago, and I make no apologies for that. I wouldn't want to spend three, four, five, six, seven seconds in the presence of an eternal or holy or seeing God and tell him, or at least offer myself to him as something special. The word of God says how we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Genesis will explain mankind from the standpoint of the Lord and Genesis won't water down how the Lord sees you and I, how he understands what we do. There's no point trying to cover up who you are or what you are. But for most people, they don't want to see themselves as sinful. For most people, they think they are pretty decent people. And yet when the Lord takes the time to judge you, and he will, 10 out of, uh, 10, out of 10 people die. The scripture says how it is appointed like uh, an appointment unto man wants to die. But after this, a judgment. So you've got one or two options, trust him as your saviour or take him as your judge. But let's keep moving on through the book of Genesis. And let's start today, if we may, in 23. And Sarah was an hundred and seven and twenty years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah means princess. And when she turned 127, she died. And yet you won't find Eve's death reported in scripture. And it's important that we note that because Eve is a picture of the church. There are some people that will never taste death, will never see death. There are some people that will be raptured. And of course, I hope that I'm one of them, but I may not be one of them. We don't know when the rapture is going to come. It could come right now. It could come tomorrow. We don't know. But here, Sarah has come to the end of her life and 127 years will be a drop in the bucket when it comes to the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. People are going to live a lot longer, like Methuselah, who made it to just under a thousand years old. Look at verse 3, please. And Abraham stood up from before his dead, and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a position of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. We are strangers on this earth. We are pilgrims on this earth. If we rub along with the world for a period of time, for a perpetual period of time, or if we get along with the world too often on a regular basis, something is wrong. Abraham stood up from before his dead concerning Sarah 1 and 2 and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, Gentiles, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. You were told over in Jude to save those that are dying, not even to touch their spotted garments. You were told to be an ambassador for Christ. We have something to offer people, those of, those of us which are saved. We have something to offer anyone that will listen to us. But here, Abraham, picturing God the Father, is wanting to bury his wife, which is a type of the church. In fact, most of the women and back in the Old Testament, are types of Mary. But from our uh, perspective, most of the women back in the Old Testament are types of the church. And it's important that we get these verses down. And I'll explain that shortly. I'm a stranger, verse 4, and sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you. Why? That I 
may bury my dead out of my sight. It took the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to purchase our salvation. We belonged to him, but before we belonged to him, we were children of the world. We were children of the devil. And like I say, and have been saying for 15 years now, without the shedding of blood, without faith in Christ's precious blood, we cannot be redeemed. There's just no other way for mankind to be redeemed. And that's what separates biblical Christianity from every other ism, every other sect, every other system on the face of the earth. But the context, the context is a man wanting to bury his wife and this man wanting to purchase the land. He won't steal the land, unlike Henry VIII or Charles I. And incidentally, I've just finished writing about Oliver Cromwell. Those two men, Charles I, Henry VIII, and other tyrants, uh, going back to the Dark Ages, would just steal land, such as this, for example. They wouldn't buy it, they would steal it. And if they would offer any kind of money, it would be a pittance. But here Abraham, very much filled with the wisdom of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, knows that what he is about to do will have major consequences for the children of Israel, like right up until the present, living in Hebron and beyond. Look at verse 5, if you will. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. Abraham, you are a mighty prince among us. Jesus Christ is prince of princes, king of kings, lord of lords. And here you've got this man, Abraham, father of the nations, wanting to purchase the land, like I say. But before he wants the land, before he gets the land, there is some bartering going on. And you've got Abraham, this very upright character, save man, negotiating with Gentiles. And they can spot the preeminence of Abraham, a man who once upon a time before Jehovah revealed himself to him was worshipping Allah, meaning the God. And yes, the term Allah, meaning the God, has been around for a long time. When Muhammad arrived on the scene, if he even existed, but the official line is that he was told, he was revealed from Allah, that he would be the final messenger, and yet the man couldn't read or write. He was an epileptic, demon-possessed character, and on top of that, some have even suggested he was poisoned by his own people, like Stalin was by his own people. In fact, there was even a suggestion that Cromwell was poisoned by perhaps the Jesuits. I don't believe that, but my point is this. When you get to the level of Muhammad or Stalin or other tyrants, people don't like you, people resent you, and therefore they will want to kill you. They want to just eradicate you. But let's keep reading on. My Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. In other words, whatever you want, Abraham, you take it. We know you are the real deal but that thou mayest bury thy dead. So, as always, if you can, bury a loved one. Don't cremate a loved one. It doesn't matter, of course, when it comes to one's salvation, but if you can, 
If you can bury your dead, you should do so. Seven. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. Some years ago, when Obama became the American president, 2009, I seem to recall it was, he went around the Middle East, and he went to Saudi Arabia, he went to Egypt, he went to other countries, and you may remember this. One of the first things he did when he got to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, very much the uh, birthplace of Muhammad, apparently, was bow down to the king. I mean, bow down. And yet, a year or two later, when he was in London, his wife stood next to the Queen of England and broke royal, pro uh, ro royal protocol. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> she broke, she violated royal protocol. She put her hand over the shoulder of the Queen and people were aghast that such would happen. They were very relaxed, maybe too relaxed, in the presence of the Queen and the, uh, her husband, Prince Philip. And yet, when he arrived in Riyadh, he bowed down to the King of Saudi Arabia. I mean, almost on his knees. What's going on? Well, of course, we believe that he's quite likely a closet Muslim a Muslim who never really left his roots, and that caused a lot of embarrassment for Americans to see their commander-in-chief, uh, the, commander let's try that again, almost bowing down to this Islamic leader. And they must have thought, we've really arrived. We've got the most powerful man in the world bowing down, paying homage to the king of Saudi Arabia. Incredible. In fact, one of the first trips that Donald Trump made was Saudi Arabia. And you say, what's going on? Well, Britain and America need help. They need money from Saudi Arabia. It's been said that Saudi Arabia and Japan and perhaps China own America. And the same could be true concerning Britain as well. Britain is bankrupt. America is bankrupt. Most of the West is bankrupt. And it's very pitiful. It's very shameful when we see our leaders going to Islamic countries where they treat their people like slaves, they put people to death, they ban women from driving cars. And if you are a Christian living in such a country, your life is a nightmare. And yet these leaders from uh, London, Washington, Paris as well, not to mention Berlin, flock to such a country and suck up to such people. They want their money, you see. Absolutely shameful. But here, Abraham is respectful, and we can learn a lot from Abraham's interaction with unsaved people. If there's one thing that really gets up my nose is when I watch street preachers online. Sure, I believe, for the most part, they are well-intended, and yet you watch these people, predominantly in America, going onto the streets, uh, preaching this hyper-Armenian message, sometimes hyper-Calvinist message, but mainly hyper-Arminian, and they offer themselves as holier than thou, like they no longer sin, and they can't relate to the people they are preaching to, and the people that are hearing them preach cannot relate to them either. Why not be honest with unsaved people if you are a street preacher, and say that you still have a sin problem? Don't kid yourself. Be respectful to those that you are having a communication, or you having a conversation with. 
be respectful to those that you are communicating with, like Abraham is in these verses. But here he bows himself, not like a barman would do, a very gentle, subtle, respectful bow. And no, I'm not against such, of course not. If you come into the presence of a head of state, a VIP, a dignitary, you should show that person respect, absolutely. But not to the extent of what a barman would do. Or how about members of the royal family going to temples, mosques in India, Pakistan, or even in Britain, and they dress up, they put the turban on, they put the spot on their forehead, they take their shoes off, and they head into such a place. That's going over the, that's going over the top, that's going overboard for me. It's one thing to be respectful to someone else's beliefs, fine, but to remove your shoes, to put some head covering on, or a scarf of some kind, or put a dot on your forehead, it's too much for me. Verse eight, and he communed with them saying, if it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, and entreat me to Ephraim, the son of Zor. So here, Abraham wants to be diplomatic. He wants to be respectful. And like I say, if you want to offer, if you are something special, or if you are wanting to do something special for the Lord, let me just correct myself. If you want to do something special for the Lord, you're not special in yourself, in of yourself, you are filthy rags. But if you want to do something special for the Lord, if you want to honor him like an ambassador, 2 Corinthians chapter five, this is the way to do it. If it be in your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, verse eight, hear me and entreat me to Ephraim, Ephron, the son of Zor. Now he could have just taken the land. This guy was very powerful. This guy had armed servants. And like Henry VIII, like Charles I, he could have just marched and taken such land. But due to the wisdom that Almighty God would give him, he knows it's gonna be important that this is done the right way. And I'll explain that in a moment. Verse nine, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field. For as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for possession of a burying place amongst you. Muslims believe that Israel, like Hebron, like Nazareth, like Galilee, like Israel proper, was stolen. And they believe that the Jews have no right the land of Israel. And that's why I made the case in the past that if you're not a Bible believer, what are you? And if you're not a Bible believer, then you must be a Quran believer. Because there's only two schools, there's only two options when it comes to the land of Israel. If you kick this book out, if you reject this book, then you go with the Quranic, the Quranic, the Quranic version. <laughs> you go with the Islamic version. You take their uh, side, if you will, and they believe that the Jews took the land, stole the land, did what they wanted, and it doesn't belong to the Jews, it belongs to the Muslims or the Arabs, which of course is incorrect. First of all, this world belongs to the Lord. This world was made by the Lord. The Lord is the landowner of the entire planet. In fact, he's so exclusive, he picked one planet, he picked one solar system out of many, and he picked one race in one planet. And out of that one race on that one planet, he picked one tribe 
and out of that tribe would bring forth one man. And that one man is the man Christ Jesus, the mediator between men and God. You talk about exclusive. I mean, one man out of one tribe, out of one race, out of one planet, in one solar system. And the Lord says, yes, that's right. He can do whatever he wants to do. And that's why Jesus Christ would say that no man comes unto the Father but by me. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. You talk about exclusive. That is so exclusive. And yet people hate it. But he wants a cave in a field, verse 9, to bury Sarah, meaning princess, a type of the church. 10, and Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of the city, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me, the field give I thee, and the cave that is therein. I give it thee in the presence of the sons of my people, give I it, give I it thee, bury thy dead. So this has taken place in public. What would Jesus Christ say? That nothing was done in a corner. Jesus Christ wasn't some secret leader. His apostles weren't briefed in secret like the Freemasons. They were very open, very transparent. Nothing was done secretly or covertly. But here you've got this public transaction taking place, a purchase of real estate. And if you go to Israel today, if you go to Hebron today, you will find Sarah's sepulchre, you will find Abraham's sepulchre. It was purchased, it wasn't stolen. Contrast that to Henry VIII, Charles I, or the Popes of Rome. The Popes of Rome would head off to battle, conquer people, steal their lands, and allow the papacy to be very, very rich. But here, this has taken place in public, and verse 11, the leaders, the contemporaries of Abraham want to do him a favor. They had respect for him. Nay, my Lord, hear me the field, give I thee. Christ would die for the world. The field, uh, first, uh, the field, Matthew 13, is a type of the world. And here, this field, this cave, verse 11, I give it thee in the presence of the sons of my people. Give I it thee, bury thy dead. So he wants to give this land to Abraham as a gift. But like everything in this world, if it's important, if it's substantial, if it's credible, if it's worth anything, it will need to be purchased. For example, you want to own your own home, you have to, you have to pay for it, you have to buy it. You want to have your own car, you have to pay for it, you have to buy it. You know that a car doesn't run itself, you know that your home doesn't run itself, you have to put money aside for the purchase of a house, of a car. My point is this, if it's substantial, it will cost you something. If it has any long-lasting effect, it will cost you something. Like the body of Christ, it will cost the Savior his blood. You can't work for your salvation. 12. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. If you met Oliver Cromwell, back in the 16th century, 
made that the 17th century, you would have to respect him, you would have to offer him homage. He was a very important man, you couldn't just barge into his presence, he would expect you to go through royal, uh, royal protocol, there's that word again, <laughs> royal protocol. Because he was the Lord Protector, he was the Prime Minister slash unofficial King of England. It was important that you approached him respectfully. The same is true today. If you meet the Prime Minister or the Queen of England or her husband, Prince Philip, or any of the, any of the uh, senior royals, you pay him respect. And this is the kind of thing that is going on. Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land. Number one, he's shown respect. Number two, he wants to honor Jehovah. He wants to put Jehovah in a good light. Going back to street preachers preaching this hyper-Armenian message, using foul language, four-letter words, or the Alexandrian cult creating the Bible, telling us that we haven't got a perfect Bible. I mean, what's the worst? Somebody who preaches that there's no perfect Bible, somebody who goes onto the streets and uses foul language, four-letter words, somebody who tries to undermine the scripture. Makes you think, doesn't it? 13. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead. You can't help but notice the analogy, the imagery. He could have taken the land, but he won't do that. He wants to purchase the land. In the context, to bury Sarah, his wife. Uh, prophetically, spiritually, in reference to our salvation. 14. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. He's saying that I'm a wealthy man. Abraham, you are a wealthy man. What is 400 shekels between us? Just take the land. But through the wisdom of Abraham, given via Jehovah, he knows that it is important that this land is purchased. The same would be true of King David later on. And yet, going back to what I said, this world is owned by the Lord, and he would say to the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the land, take it, and at the same time you'll have to fight for it. But in the context, we're looking at a cave in a field, we're looking at a place to bury one's dead, we're looking at one salvation. 16. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron. And Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. Here's the money. Here's the money. This public transaction, this purchase of real estate, has taken place in the presence of many people. This wasn't done in a corner, like I say. This wasn't some secret deal. This wasn't something underhand. This was done in the open, witnessed by many people. You've got money, you've got silver, you've got a purchase taking place. 19. 
And after this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan, which is still there to this present day. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for possession of a burial, of a burying place by the sons of Heth. A literal purchase, real estate, given to Abraham and vicariously, vicariously, the Jews, God's chosen people. 24.1, and Abraham was old and well stricken in years, excuse me, and well stricken in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. That is remarkable. Abraham was old, well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. But Abraham wasn't a perfect person. Abraham was a godly person. Abraham is called a friend of the Lord. Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son. His son was prepared to be sacrificed. Going back to, if you love your family more than me, you're not worthy of me. I remember a conversation some years ago I had with this chap and he said he was a Christian. And he said that on one occasion he was speaking to one of his two sons about Jesus Christ, and I can't remember the exact details. And he got on to John 14, 6, I seem to recall, like, is Jesus Christ the only way to be saved? And this man, offers himself as being saved, said that one of his sons said, I don't believe that, Dad. And he said to his son, so is Jesus Christ lying? And his son said, yes. And I was shocked to hear that. And I said to this chap, did you correct your son? Did you challenge your son? Did you uh, castigate your son? And he looked somewhat sheepish. And I thought to myself, no, you didn't, did you? Two, and Abraham said unto his elder servant of his house that ruled, all, that ruled over all that he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I'll make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife Unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country, and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. God the Father, here typified as Abraham. The servant, typified as the Holy Ghost. Abraham wants to find a bride for his son. Very common, back in the day. In fact, we have... In the UK, this uh, term called honor killings, a terrible term. In fact, just this morning I was reading online an awful story of a young Muslim girl who was dating an Arab Muslim. Only 19 she was, very pretty girl. And her family got wind of this relationship, both Muslim, incidentally, but he was the wrong type of Muslim, you see. And she was tracked down by her family raped, murdered. This has become quite a story online, and yet the media aren't picking it up, picking it up. The media have completely ignored it. I mean, the television media. You've got a couple of print press uh, media, a couple of newspapers that are printing the story, but the media, for the most part, are completely ignoring it. Why? It's not PC. The media are terrified, like the television media, like the left-wing print press to tell you what it's like or what the background to a so-called honor killing is all about. 
I'm in her own family, not strangers. Raped her, killed her, because she was hanging around with the wrong type of Muslim. But back in the day, this was normal practice. They call it an arranged marriage. Five, and the servant said unto him, peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou comest? What happens, Abraham, if your future daughter-in-law doesn't want to marry your son? No possible way for a view to be held in certain Islamic circles. Most Pakistani Christians, excuse me, most Pakistani Muslims, most Indian Muslims are married thanks to their parents, their extended family members. There's very little freedom concerning Pakistani Muslims, Indian Muslims. But here, the servant wants to know what he should do if the woman doesn't want to follow him back to the land to marry Isaac, of course. Also keeps in mind, there is no irresistible grace here. As of now, I'm currently updating my article on Calvinism. I wrote it back in 2004, 2005, so it's long overdue for an update. And there's one thing that continues to get under my skin. It is the doctrine of Calvinism. This belief that Almighty God hates most of the world and only loves a tiny minority of the world. And they can't really understand that because only a minority of minorities believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that somehow the majority of the majority are hated, despised. But that's not what the scripture says. The atonement was given for the whole world, but only those that appropriate it are saved. So these verses concern Abraham, God the Father, if you will, his servant, Eliezer, the Holy Ghost, if you will, Isaac, Jesus Christ, if you will, and a bride is being purchased, or a bride is being sought out. Now, of course, the bride for Isaac is a type of the church. So there's no irresistible grace here. There's no go out and find her, force her to come back like you would expect to find in many Islamic countries. And yes, it still happens today. Like I say, Pakistani Muslims, Indian Muslims, their daughters are expected on many occasions to marry men, older men, men that they've never met, that they don't even want to be with. In fact, I've heard so many accounts over the years of young Islamic British women that have killed themselves. They can't bear the thought of being married to an older man, sometimes twice their age. And you say, why does this happen? Well, number one, it stays within the family, quote unquote. Number two, money is exchanged. And number three, if the daughter challenges her parents, especially her father, she is seen as dishonor, dis uh, dishonorable. She is seen as a disobedient daughter, child. And that's why, like I say, on many occasions, She's either tracked down, smeared, raped, and the worst case scenario for her, death, murder.
terrible. And yet the press, for the most part, rarely, if ever, talk about it. They are terrified. They are terrified to speak out against Islam. They won't read the Quran. They won't read the Hadith. They won't research the roots to Islam. And yet they will make documentary after documentary about Christianity. They will write book after book about Jesus Christ. And yet you won't find any book, you won't find any documentary, you won't find any DVD put out by the mainstream media about the man Muhammad or Islam. I think it was only, I think it was uh, 2014, Channel 4, a British uh, television station in the UK, commissioned a guy called uh, Thomas Holland, an unsaved Anglican, to research Islam. And Channel 4 put this program out called uh, In the Shadow of the Sword. I think that, that's its title. It's on YouTube, incidentally. And it was very interesting to watch. And this Cambridge or Oxford scholar wrote a book about Islam and its origins. Channel 4, like I say, allowed it to be shown. But the backlash was so unexpected by the Islamic community that Channel 4 pulled it. It was never shown again. Surprise, surprise. Look at verse 7. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son, thither again. So there's no picture here of you will force her, you will do whatever it takes, you will bribe her, or you will kidnap her. The context is very clearly in reference to if you find her and she is willing to accompany you back to meet Isaac, all is good. But if she's not, you are released from your oath. Going back to verse 3. Also from verse 2, this servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, picturing intimacy, closeness, because for many years Abraham had no children and his servant, his chief of staff, would have probably inherited his estate. So there's a picture there of closeness. On top of that, the muscle under your thigh is very strong. So Abraham is stressing, number one, that this has to happen. Number two, he has taken an oath by saying the Lord God. And number three, he wants the servant to know what to do if it doesn't go according to plan. Nine, and the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. Okay, Father Abraham, Okay, Abraham, I will do what you've asked me to do. I will make my way out to find your future daughter-in-law. His love for Abraham is remarkable, like the love found within the triunity of the Lord. Going back to John 3:16, how God loved the world, not just the elect, but the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, that's something that you can't really fathom. That whosoever believeth on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And yet even John 3.16 has lost on so many people. 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me a good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. This man loved Abraham. This man loved the Lord. This man is now praying for his mission to be a success, which is what we should do. Those of us which are saved, those of us which want to do something for the Lord. We should pray for, for example, good weather. <laughs> when I go and do a video such as this, when I do a video such as this, as you know, I have the potential problem of insects trying to distract me, dog walkers, people hanging around watching this guy filming a video, not really understanding what it's all about. And I shouldn't do, I, I should, and I do pray for the success of this type of thing. You should pray that your tracks will be blessed. You should pray that your preaching on the streets will be blessed. You should pray that your witnessing will be blessed. You should pray for everything and anything. And here this man, this servant, Eliezer, doesn't take it for granted that this will be a great mission. It could go one of two ways. He could find this woman. He could speak to her. He could try and present Isaac to her and she could turn him down. Free will, you see, going back to salvation. And yes, just for the record, we do have free will. Don't listen to what the Calvinists say. The Calvinists will overplay free will, whereas the Arminians will underplay free will. 14. And let it come to pass that the damsel, to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink, and she shall, and she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast shown kindness unto my master. He wants a good woman. He wants an upright woman. He wants a woman who is caring. If I look at verse 13, Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city came out to draw water. And 14 again. And let it come to pass at the damsel, to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that hath, has appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast shown kindness unto my master. He went out by faith. He had no idea who this woman would be or where she would be. He's praying for wisdom. He's going out by faith, picturing the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost convicts the world of sin. And those that respond to that conviction, those that believe, are then appointed, are then ordained are then predestinated to be conformed to the image of God. 15, and it came to pass, before he had done speaking that, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, or Micah, Micah, or Milcah, excuse me, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with a pitcher upon her shoulder. And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, that text from the book of Acts, as Peter was speaking, the Holy Ghost came on them, very reminiscent. Behold, Rebekah, 
came out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with a picture upon her shoulder. I love the genealogies found in scripture. So many genealogies which feeds into the great white throne judgment, that the Lord sees everything, that he retains everything, that nothing gets past his attention, that he sees and remembers everything. And the books are opened, Revelation 20, and whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life was cast into the lake of fire, terrifying. Verse 16, And the damp soul was very fair to look upon a virgin, neither had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled a pitcher and came up. Again, you can't miss the imagery. Damsel, very fair to look upon, a virgin. The body of Christ was referred to as a chaste virgin, preserved blameless and spotless to our great Saviour. Neither had any man known her. You don't serve two masters, you don't serve two gods two kings. If you are born again, you serve one God. If you are born again, you worship one saviour. This also feeds into the whore of Rome. This feeds into false religions. And if we get time, I'll look at one of the Proverbs I was reading last night, Proverbs 7, which speaks about a woman. It speaks about a woman corrupting a man. And it's far more than just a prostitute. It's far more than just this immoral woman corruptness, decent, upright guy, there's a religious element to that, a spiritual element to that, like Holy Mother Church, whore of the world, mother of harlots, so on and so forth, and that system, that female system, <coughs> Holy Mother Church, not Holy Father Church, but Holy Mother Church has and continues to deceive so many people, and that's why there are many applications in Scripture you get the first application, and you get the second application. But this woman, damsel, virgin, fair to look upon, neither had known any man, and she has now come into contact with Eliezer, picture of the Holy Ghost, and she, one more time, is a type of the church. 17. And the servant ran to meet her, and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. You think of the prodigal son. It speaks about, and when he came to himself, his father saw him, ran to him, put some clothing on him, gave him a ring, an animal was sacrificed, and they rejoiced. Similar kind of thing. 19. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also, until they have done drinking. So she's a caring woman. She's not right woman, she's a virgin, she's a young woman, she's very fair to look upon, like Mary. And on top of that, she has an interest in animals. She's not cruel, she's compassionate, she's considerate, which is how we should be as the body of Christ. We should be all of those things. We should be able to drop what, what, what we are doing, <coughs> at a moment's notice, and put ourselves out for somebody who needs us. Not easy, I know. And that also feeds into picking up your cross each and every day, 
and following the Lord. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love family more than me, you're not worthy of me. Not easy, I know. Twenty. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trowel and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. Now she's running. There's a picture of doing something like go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of doing something now. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. 21. And the man wondering at her held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So at this moment, this servant isn't completely sure as to whether or not she is a real thing, which feeds back into the Holy Ghost, convicting the world, seeds are planted. Matthew 13, some bring forth a hundredfold, 90, 30, so on and so forth. And no two saved people are the same. No two saved people are gonna bring forth the same amount of fruit. On top of that, you may preach to a group of people and only one or two get saved. So this woman, Rebecca, a good woman, and Rebecca means mother of nations, Eve means the mother of all living, Sarah means princess. This woman, Rebecca, is a good woman, a godly woman. She has been told by Abraham's servants who he is, why he is there. She explained such to her family. Look at verse 58. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. Free will, picturing salvation. The Lord doesn't use irresistible grace. He doesn't force his will on anyone when it comes to salvation. Sure, he will override at times, the will of unsaved people like Pharaoh, like uh, Pilate, like Herod. And of course, he knew through foreknowledge that such were never going to be a friend of his, shall we say, and therefore he would harden their hearts like Pharaoh. And at the same time, we read from Exodus that Pharaoh would also harden his heart. So you have this battle going on between the Lord hardening his heart and Pharaoh hardening his heart. Also, if you get a chance, 1 Samuel 18, 20, 1 Samuel 18, 20 speaks about one of Saul's daughters loving David and marrying David. So there's no prearranged marriage, not like you see in Islamic cultures today. Yes, there were arranged marriages back in the Old Testament, but not in the sense of it being forced upon a particular woman. And I've just given you one of the greatest accounts in the Old Testament of a marriage taking place or the soon-to-be marriage and nobody was forced, nobody was coerced, unlike those in Islamic circles. 25.1 Then again, Abraham took a wife and her name was Keturah. So Sarah has died. She's 127. He's purchased land for her. She is dead and buried. She's resting. And like I say, her sepulchre can be 
seen today, you can go to Hebron <coughs> in Israel and you can see where she is buried. But now Abraham wants to remarry. Nothing wrong in that, of course. Verse 5, And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. God the Father gives all that he has to God the Son. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. The Father and I are one. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. If you honor the Father, you honor the Son. If you dishonor the Son, you dishonor the Father. First John, you can't get around it. If you love Jehovah, you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you love Jehovah. Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. Again, God the Father, God the Son. Look at verse 6. But unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward, unto the east country. One of the great problems for those in the Old Testament, like kings, patriarchs, was their love of women, like many women. It's one thing to have one woman, but to double, to quadruple, and on top of that, to have concubines causes all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems, not only with the women, jockeying for attention, jockeying for positions, trying to share the husband with the other women, but on top of that, the children start to squabble, fight, argue, like the David and uh, Absalom issue. But these concubines, sons, verse 6, have been given gifts, and then he sends them away, which in a sense pictures unbelieving Israel. Unbelieving Israel is beloved by the Lord, of course, but unbelieving Israel is just that, unbelieving. And therefore, without faith in their Messiah, they cannot be redeemed. So they are sent away. They have been provided for. Most Jews are well-to-do. Most Jews are comfortable, financially comfortable. Most Jews have a decent sort of life. They are very good when it comes to business. Almighty God has given them that gene so they can survive. And uh, they have needed it, of course. They have needed it for centuries. But the separation between Isaac and the concubine's sons cannot be missed. While he yet lived, latter part of verse 6, eastward, and to the east country. And yet they came from the east, seeking the king of the Jews. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Look at verse 7. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. And hundred, threescore, and fifteen years, 175. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years, and was gathered to his people. A good man, but not flawless. A godly man, but not perfect. Nine, and his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zor, the Hittite, which is before Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth. There was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. He's purchased his own burial plot. He's purchased a field. He's purchased a cave. His wife, Sarah, 
is buried, and now it's time for Ishmael and Isaac to bury Abraham. They've come together for the good of their father to bury him. And 10 again tells you that it was purchased, not stolen, not confiscated, not purchased for pittance, purchased for 400 shekels of, uh, 400 shekels of silver. 11. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt by the well of Lahori. So the blessing goes to Abraham. The blessing, the blessing is then passed to Isaac. The blessing is then passed to Jacob, the patriarchs. Going back to my earlier comment that Almighty God is very exclusive. One planet, one race, one tribe, one man. And here the blessing has gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, feeding ultimately into the arrival of the Messiah. Look at verse 20, please. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Raban the Syrian. He's 40 years old and he's now going to marry Rebekah. Like I say, she was given the chance to receive or reject the invitation like you can receive or reject the Saviour. <coughs> and she would receive it, and I hope you have, concerning your salvation. He's around 40. Jesus Christ was 30 when he went into the ministry. But here 40 concerns Isaac, and people say that life begins at 40. Perhaps. But if you're not saved, your life hasn't yet begun anyway. Look at 23. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So, she's finally fallen pregnant. It's taken a long time, like 20 years from memory. And she has been told by the Lord that she has two nations, two peoples, not two children, which of course she does have, but her children are types of something far greater than just uh, Esau or Jacob. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, based on the Lord's foreknowledge, based on election. And the elder shall serve the younger, which was kind of unusual, because normally the eldest, the firstborn, was top dog. But if you know your Bible, if you read Genesis carefully, you know that the firstborn in Genesis were predominantly the bad ones, the wicked ones, like Cain. And here the firstborn, the elder, are going to be expected to do something somewhat differently. And the elder shall serve the younger. So we are now speaking about service, not salvation. And this is where the Calvinist gets egg on his face. He reads this and he goes to the uh, book of Romans and he, and he says to himself this, that Almighty God chooses people for salvation before the world began and he chooses others for damnation before the world began. Incorrect. Incorrect. He will choose people for service 
he will allow some nations to be greater than others. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to salvation, everybody is given a fair crack at the whip. Let's keep reading on. 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. Esau, the firstborn. Esau should have been the boss. And yet like Cain was a wicked one, like Absalom. 26, and after that, came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. Go back to that text from Genesis chapter 3, the head and the heel analogy concerning the saviour and the serpent, also found in John 13, concerning Jesus and Judas. And here, Jacob comes out and his hand takes hold on Esau's heel. A picture there of power, a picture there of preeminence, a picture there of prestige. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, verse 27, and Esau was a cunning hunter a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. That term, he plays the field, comes to my mind, like he's very promiscuous. And here you got two boys, two men. One, a cunning hunter, a mighty hunter like Nimrod, an Old Testament type of the Antichrist. A man of the field, very confident, goes out climbing, trekking, likes to go hunting, a real man's man. Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. He likes to be on his own. He likes his own company. He is the more reserved type of guy, shy, but decent, and yet not quite, as we are about to discover. 28, and Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now we get into favoritism and people say this, they say that if they have three or four children they have a favourite son, a favourite daughter. Cromwell had a favourite daughter, Elizabeth. He thought the world of her and she got sick, she died a month or two before he died and he never really got over that. Of course at the time he was dying as well but Cromwell had nine children and he too fell foul of favoritism. Esau loved, excuse me, Isaac loved Esau, verse 28. Rebekah loved Jacob. So Isaac loves Esau, Rebekah loves Jacob. And that can cause all kinds of problems, jealousy, insecurity, going back to the David and Absalom incident, which almost destroyed David. Going back to why you shouldn't have more than one wife, why you shouldn't have many children. And yet the Mormons are still doing this in parts of America. Officially, it is illegal, and yet they still do it. Muslims have four wives, 
and multiple children and that also uh, will cause all sorts of problems I would suggest 29 and Jacob sod pottage and Esau came from the field and he was faint and he was faint and Esau said to Jacob feed me I pray thee with that same red pottage if I am faint therefore was his name called Edom Esau Edom Esau is a person Edom is a nation. There's much more to this than just two boys. Jacob, have I loved. Esau, have I hated. Incidentally, written right at the end of the Old Testament, many years after their deaths. Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage. For I am faint, therefore was his name called Edom. 31. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. Jacob was a sly man. Jacob was already going to be the boss, the leader of the two. And yet Jacob, not yet saved, is planning, he's plotting. Sell me this day thy birthright, like I want to have your inheritance. I want to have all that will be rightfully yours. 32. And Esau said, Behold, I am at a point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Now Esau is shameless. Not to mention he has, he has completely exaggerated his uh, physical condition. 33. And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swear unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Sacrilegious. And I'll call this message sly, shameless, sacrilegious. You've got two young men, both blessed by the Lord, both beloved by the Lord. Jacob is going to be the prince. Jacob is going to become Israel. Esau is going to serve Jacob. That was very clearly put down in scripture and revealed to the parents. And yet Jacob is impatient. Jacob is sly. Esau, Esau is shameless. And together they are a dangerous two, a dangerous duo. 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Hebrews says that Esau was an immoral man, that he wanted his birthright retained or returned to him. He wanted it, he cried over it, and he couldn't get it back. And most people suggest that the text from Hebrews is in reference to one's salvation. It's not. It's in reference to his loss of his birthright. What you could do with that is suggest it's a picture of your reign, your rule, your millennial inheritance with the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. You could suggest that. You could suggest that if you don't live the right kind of way after you are saved, you risk losing your millennial inheritance, crowns, absolutely. But salvation, absolutely not. So here you've got two young men not saved yet. You've got Jacob being a cheat, being a supplanter. You've got Jacob planning, plotting. You've got Jacob 
being uh, sly, you got Esau being shameless, and when the deed's done, 33, Jacob is also to be condemned. But these two guys together, not yet saved, are sly, shameless, and guilty of dishonoring the Lord, and they are sacrilegious. On top of that, they are carnal, which feeds into the apostles. The apostles were carnal. After they were saved, they would be asking themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God, and Christ would have to clip their wings. People today can also be carnal, saved, and that's why you see a lot of people online. A lot of churches, a lot of ministries in competition with each other, and they start to badmouth each other, they start to criticize each other, they start to become very irate. And you say, why is that? Well, they are carnal. And Paul speaks about such people in uh, Galatians, backbiting, bickering, devouring one another. <clears throat> Something isn't right in their hearts. Their relationships with the Lord have gone astray. So just over an hour, and I will say this before I conclude that, as always, Genesis gives you a very honest account of what people are like pre and post their salvation. The scripture doesn't uh, play down the wickedness, the innate wickedness in the hearts of people, whether they are saved or unsaved. Only one man walked on this earth who was sinless. And of course, that man was Jesus Christ. But Abraham wants to purchase land, he wants to purchase somewhere to uh, bury his wife, Sarah, a picture of our salvation. Christ would purchase the world with his blood and his divine blood, his precious blood, allows us to be forgiven, cleansed, allows us to go to New Jerusalem upon death. He doesn't just take the land, he doesn't just steal it, he doesn't just bulldoze his way in, which he could have done. He had uh, his own hired servants armed, but he negotiates. He's diplomatic, you see, like what we should be able to do when we speak to unsaved people. We shouldn't be arrogant. We shouldn't go in all guns blazing. And yes, sometimes we can lose our call. I know I can, but it's not something we should be doing all of the time. He's able to purchase the land, like I say, uh, for a tiny sum of 400 shekels of silver. This transaction has been seen in the presence of others, like a legal agreement has been drawn up, if you will, that land is owned by Abraham, and Abraham is the father of Israel. So the Jews have every right to the land. The land was given to the Jews uh, via Jehovah, but in the context Hebron, in the context their, burying, their burial place has been purchased by Abraham. 24, Abraham is getting up in years. The Lord, has, the Lord has blessed him. The Lord has been with him. Going back to, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if you are saved or if you are saved and you don't always walk as closely to the Savior as you should do, he's still with you. But it's like a relationship. 
You get out what you put in. If you want to get a lot out of your relationship with the Saviour, walk closer with Him. Spend more time in prayer. Spend more time in the Scripture. And if you want to really make a difference, be a soul winner. 24 speaks about a marriage, picturing the body of Christ. And 24 speaks about the servant being the Holy Ghost, sent out to find a woman, Rebecca, type of the church. And he meets this woman. And she's a good woman. She is uh, ready for Isaac. And she has been invited. And she takes up the offer. She accepts the offer. A marriage takes place. And of course, that is a great picture also of the marriage supper of the Lamb. 24 feeds into uh, 25. Abraham remarries, has concubines. Two sons are going to be uh, picked to do something quite remarkable, which if you think of most of antiquity, it's easily forgotten, quickly forgotten. Most of what you see in here doesn't really have any long-term effect. Most of those that have lived and died have never really left any kind of legacy, very quickly forgotten. And yet two boys, Esau and Jacob, are going to be born to their parents, and Jacob will be the leader. Esau will be... Uh, follower, the leader, the uh, assistant, or if you want, Jacob will be the leader, and Esau will be the servant. And yet they couldn't wait, they were impatient, they start to uh, deceive their parents, their parents were just as bad as they were, which feeds into the problem, of course, of favoritism, the problem, of course, of polygamy, the problem, of course, of not being able to control yourself, because you are a holy vessel, you should know how to conduct yourself, your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, you shouldn't overindulge in anything or in any way. Esau and Jacob are unsaved around this time and they are sly, shameless and sacrilegious and the last part of 34 Thus Esau despised his birthright. What a terrible way to close a piece of scripture. But I'm out of time now, and I will jump out of camera shot one final time and wish you every blessing and happiness in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.